I was just whispering to Shada, what did you talk about last night? So she whispered back, refuge, faith and love. So at least I know what not to talk about. <laughs> um, so I'll talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, in one of the uh, small groups today, I um, had a, um, uh, a fleeting uh, reminder of a very well-known uh, Buddhist uh, story from two and a half thousand years back. And it's the story of a wandering ascetic named Bahia, B-A. H-I-Y-E, Bahia, who had very pressing, burning uh, questions to uh, ask uh, the Buddha. And uh, in the tradition of uh, ancient India, uh, men and women in the homeless life went on what's called the begging round to collect alms food in the morning. And... The Buddha said he uh, was engaged in his arms round and would uh, speak with uh, Bahia afterwards. And the outcome of this me meeting was the Buddha saying something which on face value sounds very uh, simple, nothing special about it, but certainly worthwhile looking into and uh, uh, investigating. And he said, in the seeing, in the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the listening, there is just the listening. In the sensing, that's a shorthand term for smelling, tasting and touching. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. And in the knowing, there is just the knowing. And the impact of these uh, words on the Bahia woke him up. And in the very process of our extraordinary uh, existence, I'd like to offer some kind of reflection uh, on this and some kind of illustrations and of, of, of the importance of it. In our everyday mind, everyday way of being in this world, here we are with this human body and we have a connection with what's around us. And the world reveals itself through our senses. What comes to the eyes, ears, nose, tongue and touch, which you and I might describe as the very raw sense data. It just arrives. And it's bareness. But it doesn't just land on our eyes, ears, nose, tongue and touch. It actually passes through. And when it passes through, there's a meeting. And it meets with the inner life. So the inner life comes, so to speak, towards. The senses come. The sense data comes, passing through. The sense stores. There is a meeting. And... 
in that meeting, there's our view of, ex of existence. There's what we say, what the world is. We can't actually get to what is seen. It, it, there is a gap. And the object comes through the eyes, it comes through the nose, it comes through the, the body, as I said, and the meeting takes place. And in the meeting that takes place, in the bare seeing that takes place, easily, but not always, and not certainly not in every moment, and it couldn't be possible in every moment, the seer, the self, the seer arises. And there's a threefold event that goes on in the moment. And therefore it relates, relates to every time you and I have ever opened our eyes. And sometimes the seer arises and therefore the threefold event is there is the seer, there is the seeing, and there is what is seen. There is the listener, the listening, and what is listened to. Smeller, the smelling and what is smelt. There is a taster, there is a tasting and what is tasted. There is a toucher, there is what is touched. There is a touching and what is touched. All of life, as it that event goes on, shapes our whole world view. The troubles of the world are bound up with it. The pleasures and the joys of the world bound up with it. And therefore, we bring awareness as much as we can to what is going on with the seeing and, and listening, so on and so forth. In that, again mentioned in the uh, small uh, group, in that which takes place, sometimes the seer arises. And with, when the seer arises, what is seen easily gains more, what? More substance, more significance. So there's a movement that goes on, the seer is born, and the seer um, projects, or contributes, or invests, or give characteristics to, or gives features to, or gives specialness to, or gives something to, to what is seen. And in that arising of the seer, with the scene, the gap is established. The separation is established. And we can live spellbound by this separation. Sometimes we see what fuels the separation. The fueling of it may be attraction. The fueling of it may be aversion. The fueling of it may be simple investing it with characteristics. The fueling of it may be through various views and opinions. And all of that movement, for it to have significance, means that the seer 
will correspondingly be reinforced. And therefore the scene gets reinforced as well. Sometimes people uh, on retreat and for the most part there's just seeing of what's taking place. And then there is the movement called the birth or the rebirth in fact of the seer and something which is seen or some body who is seen gets picked out out of the mass of the seeing a selection is taken place so the scene becomes important so the seer becomes important and this arises and gains substance it gains a reality and how easily each time that the scene arises with some significance the self rises in the same moment and in that that view, feeling, perception, idea is carried around like a sack of potatoes. It is. And sometimes it seems extraordinarily difficult for there to be just seeing without the seeing being something and the seer becoming something correspondingly. It might be just one tiny little detail of a poor human being in the hall that one has grasped onto and there's a reaction inside and the reaction says oh I really like that about her or him or I really don't like that about her or him and therefore the eye is alive the scene is given the substance and in that characteristic interpretation or view that becomes our reality. So easy, so frequently do we uh, engage in this that we can be imprisoned in that world of the seer and the seen. Buddha says, in the seeing, there is just the seeing. That may require from us some calmness of being to just for the seeing. Sometimes it makes such an impact what is seen that one difficulty with one person in 1986 on a retreat And that person is still coming on retreats. And every time one sees that person, one remembers that is the person who dropped their slice of bread <laughs> on my foot in the dining hall. I can never forgive them. So, the object called the person, the seer which arises, the memory comes in and one is living, imprisoned in that perception. Bringing in past, 
the overlay or the therapist would say the shadow over the present and it and it just has to reinforce the seer and the seen sometimes it happens obviously as well easily enough with the listening uh, uh, that goes on and in the attending to a good example uh, myself at this recent um, Buddhist uh, conference at Spirit Rock, a sister center to uh, IMS. So sometimes in life, whenever you and I speak, whatever it is, we feel that the best thing that can happen when we speak is, might be miraculous, that someone listens to what we have to say. This is the only reason to speak in this world. And so we express ourselves, our perceptions or our views or experiences as we have been doing. And sometimes for us, in that, there is just the listening which takes place. Somebody's talking to us and we're listening. And there can be in that the importance of that, of being able to trust in what we listen to, but more importantly, to be able to trust inwardly that what's useful, if we're attentive, we can hear, what isn't useful can just pass on. And the more calm and clear we are, I think rather naturally, and I say naturally, the ability to listen can take place, and naturally we can discern what is useful, what is true, what is skillful, wise, helpful, is there, what is gossip, backbiting, or lies, or malicious, we, we can pick up, etc. If we're clear, and in that there is just the listening. But sometimes, when we speak, as an example, the speaker gets more substantial at the expense of the speaking. And when that happens, what was said becomes secondary, and who said it becomes primary. Because the speaker has got reinforced in it all sorts of attitudes and tones and mannerisms and agendas, etc., etc., and the effect of which the person only remembers who spoke and what they liked or didn't like about it, and no reference to what was said. I had a lovely example of this. I specialize in it, I think. When at the teachers' meeting in Spirit Rock, there were 215 Buddhist teachers plonked together. <laughs> Beautifully organized by uh, uh, Sp uh, Sp Spirit Rock, tremendous work of service by the whole uh, community uh, there. And various teachers, not only from the West, but from Asia as well. Then the uh, Dalai Lama came for two days, uh, and various others. 
And I had a, a chance, um, I was given uh, three minutes to uh, speak, and I, <laughs> and I come from a tradition which is not familiar with being concise. <laughs> and graciously was given five minutes, which turned out to be six minutes too long, and so I had four points to make in five minutes. And one, I called them the four M's. And one wasn't, and one wasn't mother. And one was called, if I can remember them, Shada was there weeping as she listened. Um, <laughs> One was um, actually um, military, which wasn't quite right, but basically with the presence of the Dalai Lama, uh, everybody had to vacate their rooms in the centre in order that the State Department could check every room to see um, whether there were any, I think, Chinese hiding under the beds. <laughs> So I, <laughs> said that this was between six and seven in the morning, and good I didn't I can't remember what I said now, but good, decent <laughs> Buddhists are probably doing their mantras and their yogas and their visualizations <laughs> and their mindfulness of breathing as well as their deep sleeping meditations. <laughs> and I don't think the State Department should push us out at that time. So I de dis dis decided very unilaterally that I'll sit there and the State Department official can come and sniff under my bed and I'll sit on top and do my meditation. And then I made some protest about the Maitreya project, which is a huge statue being built in uh, Budgaya, $150 million, uh, 150 meters high. And I said that if they took just one meter off the height of this statue, it would educate every child in the surrounding 100 villages aged between 5 and 15, etc. Then I had, what was the other thing? Monsanto, not quite my favourite company, and um, expressed concern about the uh, activities and the programme of this multinational uh, uh, company. Remember, this is the company that uh, used Agent Orange during the Vietnam War, and its genetically modified uh, food chain and the impact on the food chain and, uh, and on sentient beings, as they tend to exclude through genetic modification certain wild species, and that affects the entire link up in food chain. And, uh, and I said, since we all take vows in the Buddhist world to 
save all sentient beings, to serve all sentient beings, it deserves some concern and protest. And then the, uh, what's the fourth one? Mahayana. Yes, Mahayana. <laughs> so, okay, very good memory, yes, Father. <laughs> and, then, and then I said that in my ten years in the East, that the concepts Mahayana and Hinayana, which many of you will be familiar with, have caused so much conflict and stress and superiority and inferiority and conceit and arrogance and all, all, all of that. Here in the West, we have a real opportunity here to leave these concepts where they should be left. That is in the East, not drag them into the West for another uh, duality, because it's, those two concepts have probably created more suffering in Buddhism than any, any other two concepts in the, in the religion. Yeah. So I mention all this in the space of five minutes <laughs> in one hell of a rush. <laughs> and the tone and attitude uh, there uh, went along with it in a very forceful way. The outcome of it, this is I'm getting to. The outcome of it was the four M's became a secondary factor and what's up with him, meaning Christopher, became more of an interest. And so very afterwards, various people, some close friends, well, Buddhists don't get angry, but let's say mildly irritated <laughs> <laughs> with me. And it was fair enough. And, uh, and the more uh, activists said, good on you, Christopher, and etc. And someone needs to say it, or, what, or whatever it might, might be. But nevertheless, the point I'm mean, making was that the message got, became secondary, and the damn messenger became primary. And therefore, people remembered 4Ms. Nobody remembered what they were, except for Shada. <laughs> <laughs> And there was more interest in why I was so self-righteous and why I was this, and, and which was fair enough. Point I'm coming to and make, make the point here, that it, the serious point is that they were right. That that was the fact. And that if there had been more on my part, more skillfulness in speech, more care with it, change the tone or whatever, made then taking it off the speaker and off and onto the spoken. This is what I mean by in the speaking there is just a speaking. And therefore the 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 speaker must take second place, but it won't because the eye and the, and all that goes along with it, vested interest, you know, trying to get something done quickly, what 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 whatever it it, it may be the various motives, but it watered down the points which I still feel are valid, are valid and don't uh, take a step back from them. And the um, official from the State uh, Department said, you know, I can have you in the county jail just like that. <laughs> so I said, look, sir, I don't think sitting on my bed 
cross-legged with my eyes closed is a great threat to the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and then he, then he said, please meditate for me, <laughs> which, was rather, which was rather sweet. So, <laughs> indeed, it's true. So, in communication, you and I speak. We speak to other people, etc., etc. In what we, in what we, what we say, if we can stay in touch with the process of the speaking. We'll sense and feel in ourselves a difference in quality to the speaking from when uh, inflamed or boosted up or fearful or whatever it is, speaker is arising. And what that does to the communications. In the seeing, there's just a seeing. In the listening, there's just a listening. In the speaking, there's just a speaking. And that is part of a practice so that the, the essential process that is taking place isn't being distorted by the self, by the I and all the investment in it bound up with the view of the object the view of those who listen or whatever so in, in this practice of looking into the arising of the seer the listener, the, speak, the sp speaker. That also arises, of course, in the very process of the day and of the meditations them themselves. And therefore, in that, at times, the, uh, the world of the I, me and my in its arising and the way that it, it keeps latching onto. In giving attention to uh, all, all of this, it's as though, and I think when the, uh, the, the theatre director was speaking uh, today and uh, someone mentioned to me uh, afterwards, that sometimes in situations like that where there is some voice of influence or whatever, and in that profession, I understand, if I remember rightly, the person said, the word cut is used. You have a scene and you go, cut. And maybe we should adopt that culture to cut regularly in our own practice. And so sometimes when we're right in mid-flow of something, both either in the meditation and we're really going along with something, instead of just saying, thinking, thinking, Perhaps we should just come in with a little bit more firmness. Cut. <laughs> and <coughs> somehow just cut the sequence. And plenty of opportunities just to cut. If, as we were hearing the other day in the inquiry, sometimes with uh, language, with uh, description, with the motive language or whatever there, Again, can we just pause long enough to see whether our description really has a relationship to the described? Or is there just describing? 
If there isn't, the describer, the I, the me, the my, will end up using all kinds of forms of language built up so intensely and strongly it doesn't really have any real connection and relationship to the described. And so sometimes we're going on and on about something or, or other and we think and we believe we're imagining we're talking about something out there in the world or something in our life. We've long since lost contact. We, we, we just got completely distant from that a long time ago. And all that we've got left is this whole jumble of memories and views and experiences and feelings, etc. Claiming rather conceitedly we're talking about something which we know about. And we're not even in that world. We're in, we're in, we're in, a, in, in, in a world of a volcanic eruption going on and on about it, boring the minds out of every meditation teacher on earth, and not really connected with what the actual incident is. The easy happens, the self drags up so much in the name of something. The describer has overshadowed the described. Take some awareness from all of us to just check in with that movement that goes on. Because if we, we do it with events called the past, you know, sometimes we have been somewhere, we've had a good time, we've spoken about it, we sent off dozens of emails to loads of people who are sick to death of emails. And we tell them in reams of pages on the emails what a wonderful holiday we had. Not realising that they get to the end of the first sentence and look for the delete button. <laughs> Come on, it's true, we all do it. <laughs> and... Sometimes we've built something up to such a degree about what actually happened that actually there was more pleasure in the building up than in the event. And similarly, we do it with regard to the future. One says, I can't just wait. Some of you are saying, just can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> And it's going to be so great. It's Thursday evening. No eve of Shabbat to have to go to tomorrow. And on Saturday, well, party time. <laughs> and the mind builds it up. And sometimes the pleasure of the builder called the self, called the I and the me, 
can be so significant in its building, it's far more enjoyable than that party. <laughs> Give or take a tablet or two. We all know which one. <laughs> Begins with E and it's not enlightenment. So, <laughs> so sometimes... Shada thinks I'm going from bad to worse this evening. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Going to be more talk about the speaker and the spoken, I can tell. <laughs> so sometimes in relationship to what was, in relationship to what is, or in relationship to what might be, the mind has this extraordinary capacity to build. And we think if we don't build, and we don't build up, but somehow lose the pleasure of life. And sometimes it isn't easy to let that drop, to let that fade, to let that d dissolve. Because the self is dependent on the object in some way or other. And in that dependency, sometimes, yes, it works out. Sometimes it's grossly exaggerated and sometimes it's incredibly disappointing. And then we live in this world of pleasure because the builder and what was built on does work out. Or we live in a disappointment that it hasn't. Or we inflate one or the other in one way or another. And we could say, we ask ourselves, could we be so bold in life to really help dissolve that building. And one may say, my gosh, if I don't do that, I might feel neutralized, I might, might feel bare, might, might, might feel really cold and dry and, and no passion for life. But Dharma teaching that, that would not agree. Practice on the deeper level of things would not, would not agree either. And, the, and therefore, perhaps we can have access. If we're willing to make sacrifice in that area, to renounce some of that which is going on, maybe out of that, something else will begin to replace it. Which is called deep, authentic, natural happiness. Which isn't related to the self. It isn't related to the seer building or the uh, listener building or the speaker building or the taster building or whatever it might be. And it seems sometimes we... Willingness to take a step in one way, look at the projections, the conceit, the preoccupations, the investment, the putting of characteristics on things, the making much of things or whatever, to kind of see and plot our way through all that, work our way through much of that as possibly can, not with a view to a kind of dry, cold, barren existence, 
because maybe existence will reveal itself in a completely fresh way for us. A sense of things completely different. Sometimes, of course, all of that is extremely hard. It's difficult. It's a hard thing to do to challenge the view that the self gives to existence, to challenge the view that what the self has made of existence. And therefore, when you and I, we bring as much awareness as we can to these situations, could we ask ourselves, what have I made of this existence? What have I made to matter? Is what I have made to matter really of great matter? Is what I have made to matter really of great matter? And has to be bold with this, obviously. If in the deeper spirit of one's being, shall we say, in the deeper interest in existence of one's life, one says, even just partially, a lot of what I have made to matter doesn't really matter. And really honest with that and some conviction with that, I may not know as a human being what really matters, but I may be courageous enough to say, I know this doesn't matter. I may be courageous enough to say a lot of what I make a great fuss about and what I put a lot of hype into and a lot of the dramas that I make out of life really don't matter. And if I'm willing to do that, maybe I have a sense for something else, which as a liberating force in life helps all of us to put into perspective our everyday existence. Wonderful and beautiful thing that you and I have as human beings is actually to stop being human. Sounds a bit wacky, I know. Wonderful capacity that you and I have as human beings is the capacity to totally stand outside of ourselves. Not in some irrelevant, out-of-the-body experience and all that stuff. But the ability to accommodate our whole life. To acknowledge the whole life in such a way that we know ourselves, we work in ourselves and we deal with what's going on which we know or don't realize or, or whatever, but that extraordinary capacity, and in the field of sentient life, a very privileged and rare one, to actually stand totally outside of ourselves. And therefore ourselves 
doesn't fit, this is an important point here, doesn't fit into ourself. Our capacity to stand outside of ourselves means that our existence fits in with the rest of existence. Not only does it fit in with the rest of existence, it utterly belongs to it. And therefore our so-called existence has never belonged to us. It belongs to existence. And if we stand outside of ourselves, it's a corresponding way of saying we have given our existence back to existence. And therefore we don't feel to be a prisoner of existence. We don't feel to be a prisoner of life and death. Because it's not ours in the first place. So the Buddha says, in the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the listening, there is just the listening. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. And the deep and beautiful. In the knowing, there is just the knowing. And there is a knowing in the being in such a way that our life and all that goes on with it, even the ups and downs and the difficulties, etc., all that goes on, even the I, is not I. All, even the self is not self. And all belongs to something called existence. Can we give it back? Can we let it be where it belongs? And know, and for that knowing which releases us. And if we can, we'll be okay with existence. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings know that which is knowing. May all beings live a free and spacious life. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes, shall we? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.